0: Well, it's quiet, so I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Good morning, everybody. Um, We are continuing our study this morning, going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, Hopefully, all of you got a handout when you walked in that has the questions we're covering today. If you didn't, they are on the uh, back chair by the entrance. Um, I will go ahead and pray, and then we can uh, get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for giving us an opportunity to come together to study your word, um, to talk about you, and um, really to wrestle with some challenging questions this morning. I pray that you would uh, bless our discussion, uh, help us to have a good discussion that is honoring to you, and helps us learn more about your word. Um, Thank you, God, for all of the goodness and the kindness that you have shown. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, um, if you have not been uh, here for um, a lot of the series, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism, um, don't ask me what year it was written because I don't remember, uh, i sure Craig would know though. <laughs> um, we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were looking at uh, God's law and we saw that uh, God's righteous law that we have to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves is one that we have all failed to keep. Um, because of our sin nature, our inclination, rather than loving God and loving our neighbor, is actually to hate God and to hate our neighbor. Last week, we saw that somebody has to make a full payment for our sin. And that can be done in only one of two ways. One is that we would have to spend an eternity uh, in hell, separated from God, paying for the sin. Or somebody would have to, somebody else would have to make the payment for us. So we looked at, uh, and some of this we looked at last week, and then some of this was in... Um, the next lesson that we're, that we're skipping over this week, who, who could make that payment for us? We looked at the fact that animal sacrifices cannot do that. Hebrews says that the blood of animals can't actually cleanse our sin. Can another fallen human sinner do it? We looked at that and the answer is no. Another sinner cannot pay for, your, for um, our sin. Scripture commands that a sacrifice has to be without blemish. None of us are without blemish, therefore we couldn't pay for another sin. And to put it another way, If it would take me all of eternity to pay off my sin debt, how could I also pay off somebody else's sin debt when it takes me all of eternity to pay off my own? So who then can do it? The person would have to be fully human in order to pay for humans, but would also have to be perfect and sinless. At the same time, the person would have to be God because only God has the power to bear the sin of people. So um, obviously, if you've read the Bible before, that leaves really only one possibility for somebody who could pay for our sins, and that would be Jesus. So the next logical question, once we've considered that, is, does everyone get saved? If Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sin, who does that apply to? Does it apply to everybody? Does it apply to some people? Who actually receives um, this gift? And this seems like a relatively straightforward question for those of us who have grown up in the church, Um, but I think there's a lot of controversy on this. Um, How can you be saved? Is it a matter of praying a, a specific prayer? Is it a matter of getting baptized? Who does this apply to? Um, And we'll look at that this morning. So question 20 um, on your handout, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? Before we get into their answer, this question kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So Adam's sin brought death to everyone, not just a chosen few. Jesus is sometimes referred to the last Adam. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus' death for our sin would also apply to all men, right? After all, Jesus is greater than Adam, so wouldn't the effect of his atoning sacrifice be for everyone then? That's a logical question. And their answer, they say no, only those who are saved by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. So the first logical question that comes from that, uh, great, great answer by the Heidelberg Catechism, But how do we know that's true? Where do we see in Scripture that not everyone is saved? Where does that come from? This is the part where all of you talk. Where do we see in Scripture that not everyone is saved?
1: And there are some hints, by the way, in the, <laughs> in the other passages that are on the handout. That's true. The, the
0: handout has some cheater notes on it. Anybody got anything? Or is this one of those questions that's so easy there, but I am not going to answer this. This is too easy. We'll let somebody who's not as smart as me answer this. Who's got this one? How do we know that not everybody is saved? Sorry, can you say that into the mic? Matthew
2: fourteen.
0: Okay, and can you read I mean, that for us? Do you have that? 7, Matthew
2: seven, 14. 7 14. fourteen. Okay. It says the gate is narrow.
0: Very good. Yeah. Um, so uh, these are the words of Jesus in Matthew seven thirteen and fourteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So relatively speaking, few. Um, another one that I have in my notes, uh, John 3:16, 16, uh, all the way through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, then, but that in the world uh, might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we see here that those who believe in Jesus are saved and not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, right? So this is very clearly teaching that not all will be saved. So uh, one question I would have then, um, how many people are saved? Oh, go ahead. We'll get to that in a moment. I I just
3: wanted to mention um, an interesting note about salvation and believing. When you read John chapter 3, you're going to notice Jesus is teaching Nicodemus something really interesting. You must be born again. Right. That's what he's telling him. In fact, from verses 1 to about verse 11, he said at least three times, you must be born again. In fact, he's commanding him. So the interesting dilemma for man is... When Jesus commands man to be born again, that's something that only the Spirit of God can do. Good. And when you then follow up from verses 11 or 12 for about the next five verses of John 3, you're going to start to see you must believe. So interesting dilemma, but clearly we see it's only by the working of the Spirit of God that man is born again. Not everybody's born again. Right. You'll even talk to people and they'll say... I don't want to be born again right man will resist God that way I don't okay. want to believe so
0: good yeah and y- you know so, some of these some of these things seem relatively obvious if you spend any time in church um, most of those things we know but these are things that still get debated um, even in in supposedly uh, Christian circles this is something uh, people don't have uh, really solid theology on so how, how many people get saved is it like 90% of the population gets saved? How many people, generally speaking, because we don't have a specific number? Most people, few people?
1: Oh, gate, oh, there we go. The passage about it being a narrow gate gives us some indication of how many go through the narrow versus the wider gate.
0: Good. Yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a little bit of um, balance to it biblically because we saw that the uh, narrow gate um, for the believers, um, and Jesus said few would find it. So compared to the wide road, um, that's going to put saved people in the minority for sure. Um, but we also see in Revelation, uh, describes the um, believers as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That's in Revelation 7, 9. So when Jesus says that few will be saved, he doesn't mean like a dozen people, right? This is is still a a pretty substantial number of people who are being saved, but it's few compared to the number of people who will remain in their sins. So that was our first question, question 20. We'll have more discussion on question 21. What is true faith? All right, so if in order to be saved, um, and we saw the answer in 20, only those who are saved... By a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits, what is true faith? What does that look like? Uh, The answer in the catechism, uh, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, in the, uh, this faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. So there's kind of a lot there. Um, who has thoughts on this definition, uh, wants to put scripture on it? What do you guys notice in this, uh, in this definition?
4: Well, we know uh, that the Bible tells us that God is the author and finisher of our faith and those who uh, are steadfast in it until the end shall be saved.
0: Good. So we see that then that that God is the initiator of it and we see that at the end of their answer, um, this faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. Um, So faith is a... The saving faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean when it says that we're saved out of mere grace? The word mere there is kind of interesting. Why is it included and, and what's its point?
2: That he took on our sin. Um, died on the cross for us. Good. I accepted Christ. That was the first thing that was hard to understand—that someone would die for me.
0: Good.
5: Mere—I'm glad you pointed that out. Mere grace. It seems so simple. On one hand. On the other hand, we try to make it really complicated. Yes. Man's religions. You know, it's Jesus plus this. It's if you do this, if you know and then we we can even be caught up in that ourselves by oh that person will never get saved or you know we make our own as if we (laughs) as if we did something special or as if god looked at us in a certain way and said oh you're special i'm i'll save you it is mere grace it's only by his grace very good and that's it it's simple but yet very hard for us to accept
0: can you back that up with Scripture?
1: I'll give her a help. (laughs) Ephesians 2, 8, 9 would be a good one. (laughs) There we go. Yeah, uh, so I've got that in my notes. Um, I
0: I thought I'd ask just because you perfectly set up Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Other thoughts on this passage? Pastor
6: yeah well i was going to mention ephesians 2 8 and you just (laughs) quoted it so i'm not going to mention that part what i will mention is the part that precedes ephesians 2 8 because that's important to grasp and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and when you once walked following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience Um, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us and then goes on to being saved by grace through faith. So there's the contrast. You have to understand the deadness of your sin in order to understand the work of grace to regenerate a dead heart.
0: Yeah, and I I think, you know, I I don't know that I've heard anybody actually put it this way, but I think from talking to uh, some people who maybe don't have like a real firm grasp of theology, um, it's almost like they, they feel like, they're a pretty decent person. You know, they've, they've got a little, you know, a couple blemishes here and there. And, you know, thankfully, you know, Jesus saw that they were a reasonably good person and they were trying their best. And, you know, his death on the cross covered the, you know, few sins that they've committed. And, you know, based on their goodness and the death of Jesus, they're, they're going to heaven. And that's kind of, you know, Jesus is almost kind of an add-on to the, the good life that they've lived. And that's, that's thoroughly unbiblical, right? We are saved only, only, only by grace um, through faith in Jesus. Um, and uh, as Pastor did a great job of pointing out, at the beginning of Ephesians 2 there, points out we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There, it's not like we were almost there and Jesus finished the race for us. He did the whole thing and we accept that by faith. Go ahead.
4: Uh, at the moment of the crucifixion, I think the thief on the cross paints that picture perfectly as he had absolutely nothing to hang his hat on, Right. only grace. And when he had his communication with Christ right there beside him and asked that he might be in his presence that day, then the answer came back, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that had absolutely nothing to do with any works that that man had done in his life. He could not earn it in any way. Good. Very good.
0: Any other thoughts on this? So my uh, summary of this, um, true faith is when I accept that I am a sinner, fully deserving of God's wrath, and that I place my trust fully in Jesus' death and resurrection to save me from sin. It means I believe that I could never earn it, but Jesus earned it on my behalf. So to modify a quote from a former president that's somewhat um, well-known, if you've got salvation, you didn't earn that, somebody else made that happen. If You guys know the original political quote? It's a good, good way to remember uh, where our salvation comes from. Notice also that salvation comes, um, faith comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through the gospel. Um, We we have quite a few cans of worms to open in the remainder of the lesson, so we won't go too deep into this, um, except to say that this is a necessary component of salvation. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, um, nobody believes and is saved. It always takes a work of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. So let's talk about what exactly faith is. Um, Let me start by giving you a definition of what faith isn't, and then um, we uh, we can discuss as a group what faith is. So many seem to understand faith as kind of like wishful thinking or a blind hope. For example, I could say that I have faith that the Mariners are going to win the World Series this year. What's that based on? Wishful thinking, all right? The Mariners are 45 years old. They've never even been to the World Series, let alone won one. Not only that, but of the teams to make the playoffs, they were one of the worst teams to actually make the playoffs this year. And they're playing Houston, one of the best teams to make the playoffs this year. So if you were to ask me, well, what makes you think the Mariners are gonna win the World Series? Well, I have faith. I'm really kind of shutting down the discussion at that point, right? I'm telling you, I'm not being rational. We're not talking about the stats. I don't have a good reason for this. I just hope that it happens. And maybe if I put enough faith behind it, then maybe it will happen. That's not what the Bible means. Um, when it talks about faith. When we talk about having faith in Jesus, we're, we're not talking about wishful thinking. We're not talking about blind hope. So what are we talking about? What does faith look like? How would you describe faith in Jesus? I know I'm asking hard questions this morning. All the way in the back.
4: Um, I think it's uh, having a faith that you know someone will, will carry out what they said they would. So like a spouse, that the other yeah. spouse will stay true to their vows. So with, with God and his word, he says that he will see this through to, a, to completion, to, to see your salvation then revealed that he will do that. And there's not something that you can do or undo or, or on either side of that to uh, revoke that. So it's a faith in that vow that he's created with his bride, his church from before creation.
0: Good, very good. Other thoughts? I thought I saw a hand over here somewhere.
7: Uh, I was taught that uh, the faith is, uh, is, is well-defined as a confident trust in um, good. because we know um, by his word that he keeps his word, and that God never—God who never lies—made a promise to us, and then uh, we see him throughout Scripture um, keeping his word. And then, really, just the inc- incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, and reading about what he's done and the life that he that he led, as um, we're ultimately trusting in this person, Jesus Christ,
0: and we have a, a pretty good picture of who he is, Good and our faith is in, in him and what he's done. Very good. You all are hitting on some very important uh, notes here. To your right. There you go.
5: Hebrews 11:1. now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. And then going back to Ephesians 2, 8, um, it's a gift and really good. not from our own doing.
0: Good. Are you cheating and looking at my notes?
1: <laughs> I think the word assurance is, is a thing from the passage that good. you just read, John. Yeah, that assurance, it's, it, like you say, it's not the wishful thinking, it's good confident assurance good
2: yeah just to add on to what julius was saying um we're we're given the faith to believe it's a gift from god so we believe then our faith is built on us getting to know the father and the son whom he sent by the power of the spirit of god which builds our faith, which gives, gives us confidence to believe that whatever he says is true and will come to pass. So it's a faith based on something, which is our knowledge of the Father and his
0: character. Good, very good. All the way in the back.
4: I can say faith comes from hearing
6: of the word of God from Romans ten seventeen that says, therefore good. faith comes from hearing, hearing of the word of God. So I think true faith is the one that is based from the word of God.
0: Very good. So I'll give you uh, my answer on this, and then we'll move on. Um, I'll, my answer will actually kind of summarize a, a lot of the, the great points you all have made on this. Um, our faith is like a young child who has faith in his parents. So uh, when I was younger, uh, my family was in Chicago, and I'm gonna pick on my younger brother, Justin, since he's here today. He was little at the time, maybe five, six years old. We're walking around downtown Chicago in the middle of a thunderstorm, and uh, all of a sudden, this massive bolt of lightning strikes a skyscraper right in front of us. Um, it, I mean, it was, it was a little ways away, but to a little kid, you know, it was, it was right there. You know, of course, there's the, the loud boom, and, you know, we, you know, as kids, like, we were terrified. Every one of us was terrified. My little brother's, like, just instant gut reaction was to jump into my mother's arms for protection. I don't know what he thought she was going to do to save him from the thunderstorm, um, but he had faith, right? Um, Why, what's that based on? Well, he knew um, up to that point in life. First of all, he knows my dad's a prankster, so my dad's probably not the person to go to in a situation like this. My mom, on the other hand, he knows that my mom is safe. He's never, been in, he's never been in danger when he's been with her before. So if something really, really terrifies him, going and being under her protection, he has full faith in her to protect him from the storm. Knowing what he knows now, she's not all that helpful in a thunderstorm besides maybe getting him into a building, right? But at the time, he's got, he's got full faith in her. And what's that, that based on? He's had at, this, you know, at that point in his life, five, six years of seeing that mom always provides, mom always protects me, right? And so based on that, he knows that she's the one he can go to for protection. And it's really the the same way with God. I liked you guys really hit on kind of the two elements of why we have faith that I was considering when I developed um, the notes. One is that our faith is based on God's character. We know the character of God. We know that God never lies. We know that God fulfills his promises. We know all those things, and we can have faith based on that. But the other side of, of that is experience. We've seen God over and over and over keep his promises. We've seen it in his word. We've seen it in our own lives. And that continues to build our faith. The more we see um, God's character revealed to us in studying scripture and seeing that play out in our lives, the more faith we have in God. Um, So that when uh, whatever is going on in our lives, we know that we can run to God and be under his protection because we know who he is we trust in his character, and we have the experience of seeing him at work. Does that make sense? Anybody wanna add on to thoughts on that before we move on? All right, question 22. Um, There's two questions here, um, but I'm really going to combine them into one. Um, So I'm gonna read question 22, and then I'm gonna give you the answer for 22 and 23. Um, So I think they kind of go together. What then must a Christian believe? And here's the answer uh, for 22 and 23. All that is promised in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic, uh, let's pause right there, Catholic, okay? This is not talking about Catholicism. Um, This is referring to Catholic as in the universal um, church, all Christians. And undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And then they're gonna cite the Apostles' Creed. So this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the holy Catholic Church. Again, speaking of the universal church, not Catholicism. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So the first question I wanna ask based on this question what are the minimum beliefs a person must have in order to be saved? What is it like, just like the baseline, limited, small amount of knowledge a person must possess in order to be saved? For example, and we can kind of use this as an example throughout, does a person have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? It's in the Apostles' Creed. Is that a necessary prerequisite to salvation, to believe that? What do you have to believe to be saved? maybe while you guys are thinking, I'll, I'll set this up a little bit more as well, that scripture tells us repeatedly that salvation comes by believing in Jesus, right? Um, John 3, 16, you know, Jesus says that those who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But he doesn't say what about him a person has to
1: believe. Okay. I, I think just as a starting point, that, that's the key thing is the object who, who who is the who is the one that we believe in? do we believe in the Father and his his only begotten son? starting point this is where 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 it all begins and then flush it out from there Good
2: yeah, it's pretty specific. It says if you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the baseline for Good. salvation, which is Wrought by the Spirit of God, by the way.
0: Good. Yeah, and, and I think there's, uh, I'm glad you uh, brought up that verse. I think there's two really important elements in that verse that are mentioned as a prerequisite. One is believing in the deity of Christ. Believing that Jesus is a good teacher is insufficient. Um, and then believing in his resurrection. Um, those, are, those are both specifically mentioned in that verse. What else? How would you guys describe like the minimum acceptable beliefs? Good. So, be- belief in the Trinity. Go ahead. Good. His death and resurrection.
3: You know, I think when Jesus says when the, Hol- when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convince the world of sin, Good. righteousness, and judgment. And, uh, it's You have to know that you're a sinner. And you have to know there's a righteousness that you don't have that you need, and judgment where you're going to be judged for all the things that you've done. And I think those are essential to believe. And then, of course, after you believe and you read scripture, you'll come to believe like the virgin birth and all those, you know, other doctrines that, that are essential. But um, I don't, I think just sin, righteousness, and judgment is the only requirement to be saved.
0: Good. Over on this side.
7: Uh, I don't have a, a specific answer, but I was just thinking about Ralph's response earlier about the thief on the cross and this idea of, well, what did he know Yeah. as far as what it took for him to be saved? Because Jesus says he will see paradise, so I, I don't know like, specifically what the answer is, though. Right.
0: <laughs> uh, w- one second for, yeah, I, I like that because with the thief on the cross, did he know Jesus was born of a virgin? And we we don't know what he knew, but probably not a ton good yeah I mean it it seems like the thief on the cross at least all we know of his theology he knew Jesus was going to heaven he knew Jesus was in charge of who goes to heaven and he appealed to him I want to go with you and that seems to be about the extent of it which is pretty interesting go ahead
2: Yes,
6: to me, I think um, accepting the testimony of God, because even Muslims, they say that they believe in God, but I think it's more of like accepting the testimony of God, who is Jesus. And it's written in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, and it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son,
0: so. Good. Great verse. Any other thoughts? pastor's got one.
6: i think um the passage that dan quoted romans 10 7 is really key but what's also key is understanding what the word lord means when paul's communicating lordship there um, and it's multifaceted it definitely when he's writing that people definitely are knowing that he's talking about jesus being deity Um, so there's an aspect of deity included in the word lord there's an aspect of sovereignty of kingship, of rulership in, uh, included in that. And so I think the more that we understand about the word Lord in and of itself and what's being communicated is going to be helpful for us to be able to answer these types of questions.
0: Good. Got uh, another one here.
5: Um, I guess I I want to say that um, it, is it enough just to have the correct theology devil knows who the lord is and he probably knows more than we do but obviously he's not saved. so this is um you know knowing who knowing all of these things are good but it's a uh, true knowledge faith that
0: can you move the microphone a little bit closer to your mouth here a little bit higher here can you say that last part again
5: so um I don't know if I, I guess maybe it's a like kind of a question, but having all of this knowledge and true theology doesn't, doesn't make you a Christian.
0: Correct. Yeah. So
5: it's, it's all of this knowing this, but having right application and having it Good. Um, affect change and fruit in your heart.
0: Good. Yeah. So there's definitely a, a heart change aspect to it. So we kind of asked, I kind of asked the question, what do you have to believe from like a purely intellectual standpoint, but we also know that Satan and demons believe all those things from a purely intellectual standpoint, and that doesn't actually save them. Um, So I'll give you um, my answer on this uh, quickly, and then uh, we'll move on to a couple of other uh, questions. I don't think the Bible gives us like a definite, like there's not a creed in the Bible that's like, you know, here are all the minimum things. And there are verses that are pretty simple, but you really have to unpack them. Um, to, you know, get at, like, the atonement for Christ, uh, you know, in our place on the cross. Certainly, a person has to believe that to become a Christian. Um, But I don't think the Bible gives us a full list because then people would believe those things and then reject everything else that they don't feel like believing, right? Um, There are certain core beliefs that must be accepted for salvation, such as Jesus' death for our sin and his subsequent resurrection. Um, But what about, like, the virgin birth? I mentioned that as an example. Is that necessary for our salvation? I would bet that many who have trusted in Jesus for salvation without ever hearing about the virgin birth. On the other hand, because it's clearly spelled out in scripture, somebody who says they're a Christian but rejects the Bible's teaching on the virgin birth is calling their faith into question. Do you really believe in Jesus if you think he wasn't telling the truth about his conception? So a lot of it, I think, comes down to to a heart condition, right? Because when when we get saved, when the Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration in, in our hearts, we believe whatever God tells us. We open his word and we're like, well, if he says that, then that's true, right? And so there's not necessarily like a, you know, these are the you know, exact minimum things that you have to believe to be saved because as a Christian, you're gonna believe all of it that God tells you. There's not gonna be a point where you're like, oh, well, I, I, I don't really believe that. No, if God said it, then we believe it. Um, and that's kind of the, the heart condition of faith. And so they have the Apostles' Creed here uh, and I don't know that the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism are intending to argue that in order to become a Christian, somebody has to fully understand the Apostles' Creed and believe all of it, um, but if you do b- become a Christian, um, these are some of what they would define as like core things that you as a Christian should understand. Before we get into the the, uh, the Apostles' Creed specifically, and we'll take a few minutes on that, um, what are your thoughts... Uh, in general on creeds catechisms confessions um things of that nature are they are they helpful are they not helpful i think there's a lot of kind of debate and um differences of opinion on this i'll uh, just very briefly share my background i grew up in a a baptist church i don't think i ever heard a creed confession or catechism until i was in college Uh, justin would you back me up on that we never did catechisms creeds anything like that weren't taught those as kids never heard those something i learned as as an adult So are these helpful? Is this something we as a church should be doing? Who has thoughts?
3: Interesting. Hello. Uh, In um, 1553, when the young men were commissioned to write this catechism, It was a response to the distortions of the Catholic Church. And so when you put it into context, what they were doing with the catechism, um, by the way, the universities were just being invented. The university systems, uh, the world hadn't known the university system. So that was just something in the context. Universities are just now becoming. Also, the printing press. Was just, um, was just becoming invented. So why do we say all this? Because what was happening, they were writing down scriptural questions, essential scriptural questions, and they were trying to help people understand what the Bible says. Good. So that's what the catechism is doing. It was responding in a Protestant Reformation way to a response of the deformities that the Catholic Church had had been assaulting on the church. And so that was back then. Um, It was important to them back then because it was a way to summarize, this is what the Bible's saying about essential issues of salvation, of the authority of scripture, of who Jesus Christ is, and all of these essential things to the faith. So that, that is why these catechisms were back then. By the way, Martin Luther, um he didn't invent the catechism but he popularized it martin luther did he had written the catechism you could actually find a martin luther catechism and again that was the purpose of it it's to get essential issues into the hands of the people because remember the catholic church didn't want anybody reading the bible right right that the bible was not a circulating thing Um, that's why the printing press was so so essential and before that the catholic church thought it was unrighteous for a normal person to read the bible and in fact when you went to church it was in latin who could understand that so these catechisms were huge and if we understand it today in the context of then it's helpful nobody wants to be legalistic about a catechism today right. and i understand you know when we're doing a catechism right it, it can be difficult but i uh, but I think that's important context to understand. Your question is, should we be doing it? Shouldn't we be doing it? Look, look at the context of why they did it. And I don't think they're being legalistic. Right. I don't think we have to be legalistic. Right. Do it or don't do it. I mean, essentially the Bible's gonna teach us. They just did it because they wanted to communicate essential truths from the Bible in a world that was hard to find a Bible.
0: Just for the sake of time, I'll I'll share a couple of thoughts on this and move on with a couple more questions. Um, In the flying world, um, we have two different types of information. Uh, We have what we call call source documents. Um, These are things that are published by the Air Force, the FAA, things of that nature. When we read those documents, those are are the letter of the law, and those are 100% certain. Um, if I'm, you know, and those are, those are legal documents. If I'm being challenged on something, why did you do this? I have to be able to go to a source document and point out the answer. We also have something we call gouge. Um, gouge is um, um, like study guides that people have compiled to help us understand the source documents. So I might, write, um, I might write a study guide on how to understand the electrical system for my airplane. And it might have all kinds of numbers and information that I pulled out of the source documents. The gouge is not a source document. So if I'm being evaluated and somebody asks me a question, well, how do you know that this generator does this thing or whatever, I can't go to the gouge and point to that. I have to be able to go to the source document. And so I think it's important whenever we consider creeds and catechisms to remember that this is our source document and this is gouge. And it's very important that we make that distinction. Um, I've seen that before, and, you know, I was having a theological uh, conversation with somebody on, uh, with a Presbyterian on on Facebook, and we were going back and forth on an issue, and they cited the Westminster Confession of Faith as evidence in their argument. It's like, well, that's cool, bro, but that's not the source document. If you're going to convince me, you're going to have to go to the source document. You're going to have to go to the Word of God and show me where God says what you're claiming. The Word of Man isn't going to do it for me. Um, So the the catechisms and creeds and confessions and all those things can be really, really helpful teaching tools, but we have to remember that they only have authority in so far as they agree with scripture. Um, At any points where they don't necessarily agree with scripture, they they don't have uh, authority there. We have to go back to the source documents. Um, I do think that in their proper context, there's a lot of usefulness in creeds and catechisms. Um, Studies have shown that the state of theology and professing evangelicals in America is not good. Um, a recent survey that just came out, um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like the number of, of professing evangelicals who j- says that Jesus accepts the worship of all religions, not just Christianity, is insanely high. like, how did people get that? Um, that same survey showed that a large percentage of professing Christians believe that God changes and adapts with the times. Like, wait, what? Right? And so I think, you know, uh, Wayne had mentioned, well, you know, they, they made these catechisms because, you know, they were trying to um, make this theology clear and correct this theology and give people a, a good foundation for understanding. Well, don't we have that same need in America today? There's a lot of um, lack of theological understanding of even the basics of the Word of God and of Christianity um, in, American, um, in the American church. And so I think that certainly. Uh, creeds and catechisms uh, and things like that can be very helpful teaching tools um, to help us have uh, good theology. Um, one of my nieces, not the niece that is here today, um, but on uh, my older brother's niece, just finished memorizing the New City Catechism. She has not turned five yet. She will turn five in a, in a couple of weeks, and she has the New City Catechism memorized. You ask her a question out of that, and she's got the answer just like that. Now, obviously, you know when she learns to read, she's gonna need to be able to read the Bible, and she is, she's memorizing scripture as well, but I think that her memorizing that catechism, especially if she stays with it, is really building a theological foundation for her that's going to help her. So I'm certainly in favor of these, even though it's not something I grew up with. Um, I think they're helpful teaching tools. So, quickly, in the last four minutes we have remaining, um, anybody want to offer thoughts specifically on the Apostles' Creed? Anything you like in the Apostles' Creed, anything you don't like in the Apostles' Creed, 30-second answers or less. (laughs) So I'll throw one out there. Uh, We already mentioned the word Catholic. um, When it says Catholic Church, Um, that's not a reference to Catholicism. That's a reference to the the universal church. Um, And a lot of people that use the Apostles' Creed that recite that in services have actually changed that to um, Christian church or or universal church um, to avoid confusion there. Again, The Apostles' Creed is not a source document. If we want to modify it for our use, we are welcome to do so. It's not modifying scripture. I will ask a very brief question and uh, we'll see if we can get one or two answers and then uh, we'll wrap up. Um, Anybody have thoughts on the line that says that Jesus descended into hell? Probably the most controversial line in there. I see pastor smiling, he's got thoughts. (laughs)
6: i only have 30 seconds so (laughs) um what i'll say is this is that if we're going to if if one does hold to a position that jesus did literally and physically descend into hell then you have to have a a really good reason and explanation for it And and so anybody who holds that position, I would um, just consider you to think about what would be the purpose of him doing so, because there are some really, really bad answers to that question, such as he descended into hell to preach the gospel to people who had already died and were suffering in hell as a way for them to respond Mm -hmm. to his message of salvation after they had already been punished. And that is a very bad answer to that position. So... That's an example. So I'm just throwing it out there that we need to consider the implications for, for both sides.
1: Good.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, really what I was gonna mention on that. I don't, um, I did a little bit of study on it this week. Um, and, and again, this is one of those things, you know, a, a creed, again, this is, this is gouged, this is not a source document. Um, so uh, some that have used um, this, uh, that have used this creed have removed that line or changed it to like, he descended to the dead. And by that, they just mean that he was buried. Um, so there's, um, there's different ways of going about that. Um, uh, as Pastor mentioned, there, there, there are some ways that people understand that concept that I think are in line with Scripture, but there are some really dangerous ones. Uh, you mentioned one that he was giving people who were already in hell an opportunity to repent and be saved. That is not accurate. Um, scripture is very clear on that. The other one um, that I've heard that is also very much unbiblical is that he did not finish paying for our sins on the cross, and he went to hell to continue paying them off. And when he resurrected, that's when he was done. Um, it's very clear from Scripture that that's wrong. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. When he said it is finished, he was done paying for sin at that point. Um, he also said on the, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Um, so if Jesus went to hell for some sort of a, a purpose, um, I think my pastor growing up had, um, had an argument that uh, he went there basically to just declare victory and tell Satan and demons, look, I won, it's over. Um, if that happened, it was a brief stop on his way to heaven, and he didn't suffer there. Those are kind of the, whatever you believe on one side or the other of that, That's the, those are the important notes. He wasn't offering anybody a second chance at salvation, he wasn't there to suffer, and it was not an overnight visit, Pastor. Go for it. Very
6: quickly. Calvin's position on it was that he did not physically and literally descend into hell, but that it describes the level of depth of suffering which he paid on our behalf as he received the wrath of the Father to pay for our sins.
0: Good. So a a variety of positions on that. One one more here real quick, and this will be the last. I mean, just referring to what you're saying, is there anything
7: in the source document where they got this from? That line from?
0: I do not know. Pastor's got...
6: The verse that they're drawing this from is First Peter three eighteen. Uh, yeah, so
0: I'm going to get fired for teaching Sunday school for opening this can of worms with like three minutes left on a on a Sunday morning. So uh, I will close in prayer. The, the, the big thing I, I really wanted to hit with that because that that is a that is a big line there, um, and um, and I think these are things that that we do need to discuss. If we if we were as a church, for example, which we don't do, but if if we did as part of our service that we're reciting the apostles creed together as many churches do the church needs to have a baseline understanding of what that line means when we say it right we don't want one person in the church saying it and when they say he descended into hell they're thinking jesus went to hell to suffer or that he went to hell to offer people a second chance to repent right um and that's that's why these discussions are are important we need to make sure that our our theology on that is correct one more for pastor All right, uh let's let's close in prayer before i open any more cans of worms heavenly father uh, thank you so much for your word um, thank you for uh, giving us uh, so much um, information um, that we can learn about you that we can know about you um, but more than that god thank you for the holy spirit and for the work he has done in our lives to um, give us that faith um, to be able to believe in your word and to trusting you for our salvation Um, Thank you so much, God, for all of your goodness and all of your kindness towards us. Help us as we go into the worship service. I pray that we would be able to block out any and all distractions, and we would be able to focus our worship on you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.